0: hey there mucho gusto and welcome to another episode of detective writer i'm your host sally aka detective writer and today i am super super excited to introduce all of you to a brand new guest fellow author and and retired federal agent bruce sackman bruce thank you so much for being here i'm super super excited thank you so much
1: Well, I'm excited as well. And I'm certainly looking forward to uh, telling my story to everyone.
0: Yes, of course. I'd definitely love to know a little bit about it. Like, what was your inspiration for writing? What really got you into writing a book? I'd definitely love to hear about your federal agent experience. Like, I'd love to hear a lot about it.
1: Yeah, well, um, I was very, very fortunate because um, I was in law enforcement, but in a particular law enforcement, that was dedicated to helping our nation's heroes. I was a special agent in charge of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General for the Northeast. And what that big title means is that I was responsible for all criminal investigations involving the VA, including their hospitals and outpatient clinics from West Virginia to Maine. And there were many, many facilities there. And hospitals in particular, you know, hospitals are like big cities. I mean, they do a a lot of procurement from the most complex scientific equipment down to simple diapers and band-aids and everything in between. They have a lot of narcotics, they have nuclear radiation. So a lot of things can go wrong and it was my responsibility to do the investigations every time things went wrong. And I had really a huge smorgasbord of cases, if you will, to pick and choose from. Whether it be bribery or contract fraud, procurement fraud, uh, drug diversion, um, stealing medical equipment, um, losing personal information, people trying to steal medical information. A really big inventory of cases to pick and choose from. But then one day, my sort of my life and my career changed when I got um, asked to investigate a case of a physician who was intentionally murdering his patients. And I'm not talking about like a Dr. Kevorkian. I'm talking about a physician who was murdering his patients. And that's something I had never done. And that's what started me on this journey and sort of a diversion of my career to investigate doctors and nurses who intentionally murder their patients and i've done a number of these cases around the world well i was also the president of uh, an organization called the society of professional investigators in new york and one day i was introduced um, to an audience and they said well bruce sackman you know he's an expert on investigating medical serial killers and two authors in the audience their ears perked up and they said we have to talk to this guy oh wow and the next thing you know they they approached me and they said well how would you like to do a book on this and i'm really glad they did because as you probably know it's very very difficult it is for someone who has never published anything. To get a book published by a publisher, I mean, you could self-publish, but to actually have a publisher and an agent and you've never written anything before is very, very difficult. I mean, my, my agent tells me that he would get something like 100,000 submissions a year on people who want to get books published. So he keeps reminding me how lucky I was to get a book published. Well, these two guys, one of them was a former prosecutor, and one of them was a reporter for both CNN and New York Post. They had published books before. So they had a history. And without them, I don't think my book would have ever been published on its own. So one of the things I advise people, and of course... So A lot of people in law enforcement want to do books, but it's very, very difficult if you've never published anything before to do it on your own. I was fortunate enough to hook up with two people that had a successful track record of writing and publishing books. If it wasn't for them, even if every word in the book was the same, I don't think my book would have ever been published. And I have some incredible stories that you can imagine
0: that's amazing and thank you so much for sharing your story that's absolutely incredible and it's really interesting that you bring up the topic of medical serial killers because my book the doctor I had a dream about it it's nothing and it's nothing close to reality but my main character she found out that her son was murdered by the doctor who was treating him for chemotherapy so she was on the road for trying to find out if revenge or the path of forgiveness was really the best option for her and it's so incredibly fascinating to me obviously I obviously harm should never become the result but it's just when I was looking up more about that topic it was just mind-blowing to see how many doctors actually nowadays have actually been so sneaky and so many techniques that have been used to actually kill their patients and not just doctors but um, nurses I, I even think of a of a syndrome called proxy syndrome or something like that? where Yeah, you're deliberately Munchausen getting someone syndrome sick, by proxy. You're deliberately getting someone sick just to care for them, so it's like,
1: yes. the more and that that is I, probably, it's mind-blowing. It is. That is probably the number one reason, um, and I'm no psychiatrist or psychologist, but this is what I've learned over the years, that Munchausen syndrome by proxy is probably the number one, but not exclusive, mm-hmm. The number one reason why a a number of medical serial killers actually kill their patients and what Munchausen syndrome by proxy is for those who who don't know Munchausen syndrome is when somebody will intentionally harm themselves because they're looking for attention and they'll go in the hospital and they want to get attention that they've never gotten themselves and the way they get attention, as a matter of fact you know in the VA we had somebody very interesting We called him Major Munchausen. And this is what he would do. He would research a particular ailment that doctors were studying at a particular hospital. And he would learn what all the symptoms were. And then he would go into that hospital and say he had all those symptoms. And the doctors would go, Eureka, we found a patient that we always wanted. Oh and they gosh. would run all these tests and he would get all this attention. Then after a while, the doctors would say, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. You know, all these tests are coming up negative. This guy really doesn't have this. And then he would leave the hospital and go on to the next hospital and go on to the next hospital. And he traveled from the West Coast to the East Coast, always claiming he had a particular ailment that he knew doctors were studying because he wanted the attention.
0: And, and that's not much similar. And this is not really similar to hypochondria, right? Where basically, you know, you think no, you have no, everything. No, not at all.
1: no, 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 no. He knew he didn't have these ailments. All right? He wasn't he wasn't thinking he had these ailments like hypochondria. He actually knew that he was lying, but he wanted to get attention. So he did anything he could to try to convince these doctors they should take him in as a patient and give him all the attention he wanted. So that's Munchausen syndrome. Now Munchausen syndrome by proxy, sometimes we see when a mother will intentionally harm a child and bring that child into the hospital medical uh, facility and say, oh, I'm such a caring parent. I care so much about my child. My child is exhibiting this my child is exhibiting that yeah. and many times they're not but they just want that attention so now let's move forward to doctors and nurses who we believe suffer from this Munchausen syndrome
0: I think my doctor did not, not my real life doctor, the doctor in my book oh, uh, really
1: so what happens is that a number of them, particularly nurses they never really got the attention in their life that they wanted they didn't get the attention growing up When they were in school, they usually just average. So they're really dying for attention. So how are they going to get attention? Well, when you look in many of their evaluations, you see they're like average nurses, except when it comes to a code. And a code meaning that all of a sudden some patient goes into a cardiac arrest and the crash cart comes running in and the doctors and nurses start working on the patient. And that's when these people excel. Because what they do is they try to show off to their co-workers what an outstanding caregiver they are. Remember, I had one medical serial killer. Her name was Kristen Gilbert. And the doctors at the hospital would say, you know, if I give a coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She starts taking charge. She starts barking orders to the young interns that are scared out of their mind. But meanwhile, she caused the code. She caused the code because she wanted it to get this attention. And this is true throughout the world. Throughout the world, there's a nurse in Germany that killed over 100 patients this way. Oh, the numbers are just horrific. You know, one of the big differences between a traditional serial killer and a medical serial killer is the traditional serial killers, maybe they kill six or seven people but they're actually amateurs compared to my serial killers. The average kills somewhere between 30 and 60 people. I mean, a number of them have killed over 100 patients. In fact, one in England, Dr. Harold Shipman, killed over 300 people.
0: that's really interesting that you bring that up because I would have thought that the real difference between traditional and medical serial killers is that medical serial killers obviously like they work in the medical field so they wouldn't know what kills someone faster or what gets someone to code faster versus a traditional serial killer they just like they wouldn't know what to, to use but that's well, Oh, so you know what you
1: have to ask yourself a couple of questions like if you're so inclined to commit a series of murders hopefully no one here is <laughs> what uh, what profession and what location might you choose Well, you might want to choose a profession that has the power of life and death over someone. What professions do we know have that? Well, police officers and some serial killers have masqueraded themselves as police officers. Well, what other professions do we know have uh, that power of life and death? How about working with a group of people that have taken an oath to save lives? So who's going to believe that in a group of people so dedicated that have dedicated their lives to saving other lives, there's going to be somebody in that group that may intentionally want to take lives. It's almost hostile to believe. Look, the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals are the most honest, hardworking, dedicated people, compassionate people you'd ever want to meet. So who's going to believe that somebody in that group that has spent years studying and has taken an oath to save lives is actually intentionally taking lives. How about working, how about this? How about working in a location where the victim and the family trust you implicitly? Listen to that nurse, sweetheart, listen to that doctor. You know they have your best interest in mind. And of course, 99.9% of the time, they do have your best interest in mind. Thankfully. (laughs) Right? And if you and look, have you ever gone into an emergency room and yeah. see a big construction worker who's terrified of that little nurse coming over to him with that needle? You know, we find that the strong and the assertive on the outside are kind of the meek and mild on the inside. They don't ask questions, they don't challenge. Look, you just want to get better, all right?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, how about working in a field where there's a shortage? Of professionals. You know, there's a real nursing shortage throughout the United States. It's a very tough profession. Yeah. You have to be strong, you have to be yeah. smart, you have to be compassionate. They have a very high burnout rate. So, you know what? If we didn't do such a great job in their background investigation, well, excuse me, well, can we even found anybody? You know, in some parts of the country, it's almost impossible sometimes yeah. to find people so, we sometimes, especially during a pandemic, we have to kind of take whatever we could get. Exactly. How about working in a place where death is a common everyday occurrence? Somebody dies in a hospital, is there going to be a big investigation or a nursing home? Death is a common everyday occurrence, right? Yeah. How about working in a place where you work alone at night? You have been in a hospital ward at three o'clock in the morning, there's usually not much activity going on, maybe there's a nurse. And nurses aid, and I could take that curtain and put that curtain around me and the patient, and nobody's going to really see what's going on. You know, with these HIPAA laws, there are really no cameras uh, in the rooms that you're not going to be able to see what's going on. So I could pretty do uh, whatever I want. It sounds exactly like the plot of my
0: book in a way. The, the doctor, he was getting away with so many crimes. And it wasn't until my private detective, Sasha Thomas, that she discovered it in hospital files. And she's like, something is very fishy.
1: Oh, well, look, think about it. You know, how about working in an environment that the police are unfamiliar with? Look, most cops don't become cops because they're good in chemistry and biology, right? so they're very easily challenged by the science they're very very easily challenged by the administration by the law you know what is this hipaa this health insurance portability and accountability act what records can i get what records can i get do i need a court order do i need a subpoena does the judge have to sign it you know it's so confusing where are all the records you know, I have so many other cases, I really don't want to go in a hospital and do an investigation in a hospital if I don't have to. And you know, what about what about if the, the patient cries out, oh, that nurse is trying to kill me. Oh, we hear that all the time in the hospital. We don't pay any attention to that. In fact, if they keep saying that, we're just gonna make a little note in their chart. That's saying they're suffering from the numerous effects of all the narcotics and drugs that they're under and they're starting to hallucinate yeah. of course the doctor's not trying to kill them they're just hallucinating right and there's a real 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 condition about this it's real condition um and there's been many articles about it let me just catch the name here it's called hospital hospital delirium now, what a hospital delirium is, if you're under the uh, the effects of numerous uh, medications, you can start to hallucinate and okay. think that your doctor's killing you, right? So this seems like a pretty good place to work if you're so inclined to commit a series of murders, right? So what do you do then? You got the perfect job, the perfect location. Do you take a knife and gun or gun and smuggle it in? Well, there's no need to do that. Because the hospital supplies you with all the drug dealing, uh, all the death dealing drugs you would ever need. Some of which are untraceable, particularly in embalmed tissue, even in today's modern toxicology. So you see, it really makes it a lot easier for uh, nurses and doctors to get away with it. And that's why so many, it takes so long so long to capture them. Now, I don't know if, if you saw that movie, The Good Nurse. I've, did you see
0: I've, he- I've heard of it. I don't think I saw it, but I did see The Good Doctor. Uh,
1: well, The Good Nurse, you should read the book. It's actually better than the
0: movie. I am such a bad I feel This is so bad to admit, but I sometimes I feel like I will watch the movie first
1: and then uh-huh. read the book. I do that uh-huh. a lot. But this is a true story of a nurse that Worked in Hospital A. Hospital A suspected something and then he moved on to Hospital B and Hospital A never said anything to Hospital B. The same thing happened to B, C, D, E, F, G, H. Guy went to 10 different hospitals between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. His name was Colin, and um, every hospital suspected something but they never said anything to the next hospital. 'Cause they were so happy that he moved on, they didn't have the problem anymore. And that's another reason why medical serial killers get away with killing so many people. It's so, so many people. It's very, very tragic. Very,
0: very tragic. But I'd like to think that, you know, Hopefully with a lot that we're learning about, especially now in today's time where we have access, you know, to social media, to books, to any form of media, hopefully a lot of people can gain, like, more knowledge and be able to learn how to advocate for themselves and knowing that if something feels right, speak up, like, immediately. Someone will listen.
1: It always helps when you have family there, when you have people there. But unfortunately, you know, you've been in hospitals, you see, sometimes there are people there and nobody shows up, you know, they're kind of by themselves. And that's difficult. That is difficult because they're not feeling well and there's nobody advocating for them. And I always say, look, you know what, if you have a loved one in the hospital, you have to very politely, very politely take note of everything that's going on, take everybody's name. Make your own notes as what treatment, who's doing what at what time. In a very, very you know, you don't want to interfere, but you want to observe and this way the staff knows that there's somebody they are watching, somebody they are monitoring. I've so done I'm, that. if I'm inclined to kill somebody, I'm not gonna kill that person. I'll kill somebody that very rarely gets a visitor That's alone most of the time. You know, um, that would be much, much easier to target. But um, there are, you know, victims all over the world, thousands of victims. Um, And all the the murder weapon is always a drug that's available in the hospital. Insulin is a very popular murder weapon. But also um, epinephrine, which is adrenaline, speeds up the heart and can kill you something called succinylcholine which is a paralytic um if they want to put a tube down you it temporarily paralyzes you
0: it's so when i was researching for my book and it's so interesting that we're literally talking about this topic and this was what i was reading from my book I was reading the murder weapon in my story it was ricin and I didn't know it, but ricin is usually used like in can- for cancer patients it's usually used to help kill cancer cells. But if you use like a heavy heavy dosage of it it can become fatal. Is that also very common as well?
1: No, no, that is not common. You know ricin is a poison that's been used outside of the hospital. it comes from cast beans and it's a uh, poison that's been used outside of the hospital But I'll tell you this. Do you know what the definition of poison is? The definition of poison yes. is is too much of anything. You can even have too much water and die of hydro poisoning, okay? So if a patient is receiving a particular drug and they receive too much of that drug, that alone is probably gonna kill them, all right? So really we have to keep in mind that poison is really too much of anything. But the most common, common drugs, insulin, epinephrine, succinylcholine, digoxin, which is a heart medicine, and a couple of other things thrown in, in for good measure. You know, But insulin seems to be very, very popular these days. There's a number of cases ongoing right now as we speak. I'm sorry, right now as we speak, there's a number of cases going on. There's a doctor in Canada, that's accused of killing some COVID patients. There's a doctor in Germany that's killed, or accused of murdering COVID patients. There's a doctor in Texas that's accused of murdering some of his, uh, not his patients, but the patients of other doctors who he looked as competitors. There's a nurse that just pled guilty in, in Arkansas for using succinylcholine. So there are more cases ongoing now than ever before.
0: i like to think that it's a good thing because like the more, obviously nobody should ever be harmed or killed, but i like to think that with more, that is being brought awareness, hopefully people can realize that, you know, doctors, there are many doctors and nurses, police officers that are good people, but you should always be cautious. And not even only in a medical setting, but sometimes if you're going out late at night or if you're like, on the subway late at night or anything it's always best to just be because you never know what can happen
1: never know you absolutely never know so um,
0: I'd like to think that maybe hopefully too much writing isn't a bad thing
1: <laughs> because I so, I'm a, so, I'm a I'm, so, so my first book because I have I'm coming out with a third now my first book is Behind the Murder Curtain and that's the true story of doctors and nurses who murdered patients at the veterans hospital that's my first book. The second book is The Art of Investigation, which is a collection of stories by investigators um, detailing how they became successful in the investigative community. And the new book coming out is like a part two of the second book, which is The Art of Investigation Two, which has more stories by more investigators about some of their best cases and some of the techniques they use to solve some of these cases.
0: That's amazing, did you ever, can I ask you, when you were writing your books, did you ever encounter like any challenges, any struggles? Were you able to overcome them if you did?
1: You know, I, I always, all my books are with at least one co-author. And I found that for me, very, very helpful because I could bounce things off of that person That person has a lot of good ideas. You know, two heads are better than one. So for me, personally, I found having co-author co-authors was a huge, huge help. A huge help. Um, I don't know if I could have done it myself, to tell you the truth. I'm not not, like trained as a writer. Um, So I kind of learned as I went along, but I was very fortunate to have my first book with to people who really knew how to write and that was a good learning experience for me you know it's very hard you know it's very hard because I know like a lot of guys in, in particularly in law enforcement or other professions they say oh I have so many great stories I want to write a book it is very very difficult it is if you unless you want to self publish I did <laughs> it's very very so then you know I got lucky because I if I had done, tried this on myself I seriously doubt I would have ever published that it's
0: not impossible but it's a journey
1: it is a journey and sometimes after you self publish one book and it's successful then your second book you can go to a more traditional publisher if that's what you want to do I'm
0: hoping but I do love my self publishing group I did love them so much the only thing is you know, I do want to expand my horizons but you know We shall see. That is, I have to write a second book first.
1: And it's very difficult to get your book. Now, I found it's harder for me to actually get the book known, to publicize the book. And I've been on numerous podcasts. I do a lot of public speaking. I'm going out to California, in fact, tomorrow, to do a presentation. But in spite of that i find it very very difficult to um increase the sales of the book you know i and uh, who could afford a publicist yeah i mm-hmm. guess if you could afford a publicist the thousands and thousands of on dollars on my bucket
0: list, on <laughs> my bucket list.
1: but when you're on your own it's a full-time job marketing it really awful, right? is right am i right
0: it is true even for my blog and my podcast I feel like because I'm a work in progress you know I've been blogging for about two years but I've been podcasting for less than a year and I published my book back in December 2021 and I did it all on myself the self-publishing company helped me a lot but my friend also helped me become a podcaster because he had his podcast too any questions that I had I would ask him he even published recently another podcast so he has two and I just feel like When you're doing it all on your own, you get to learn a lot. It would be nice to maybe one day be able to have some help, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, you know, um, you have to be very patient. Two things about writing. One, you have to be able to accept rejection. Because if you can't accept rejection, don't even start. That is true. I mean initially my book was rejected i don't even know i don't even want to think about how many people rejected it until it finally got accepted all right and then when they accepted it they made it seem like they're doing me like the world's greatest favor you know and uh maybe they were i don't know but it was rejected by many 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 publishing companies it was it was very very frustrating so when you have to Accept rejection and two you have to be very very patient and three is don't expect a lot of financial compensation from your that is true you're going to be very very disappointed very disappointed but in in, in all that if you're really you know passionate and you're really then I encourage people to do it but I I want them to know what they're getting into you know because um it's a lot of hard work there's very little financial reward and it's very very difficult to get anything published i found
0: it is but i feel like you know however people feel like is most better for them you know self-publishing for me because even though I had interned for Penguin Random House back in college and I had gotten a few connections, it still was really hard for me to get my foot out the door. And a friend of mine had referred to me to the publishing press. So still, it was still, it was still one hundred percent worth it.
1: Oh yeah, look, I mean, I don't, I don't regret this. You yeah, know? of I don't, I, don't, I don't, regret this at all. And uh, look, I'm still turning out books.
0: And you're going but, to a conference. You're going to be speaking.
1: Well, and I enjoy public speaking. You know, I. I you I, and
0: not that many other people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. A lot of people don't. I kind of, I kind of like it. You know, but um, another thing I would tell authors is when you get an invitation to speak or a podcast or whatever, you cannot say no. You must say yes. Oh yeah. Because if you say no. Uh, you're not going to get called much anymore. All right? So, if there's any opportunity for podcasts, webs, public speak, you know, I speak at libraries. I get invited to a number of libraries and I speak to libraries. And I, you know, and I, I've been on about 35, 36 podcasts already. And, um, you know, their audience ranges from maybe 25 to 25,000 people. You know, or, or it doesn't, whatever. I always, I say yes. Yes, because first of all, you never know who's listening, right? Yeah. Somebody could be listening that could really change your world. You just never know. Exactly. You know, you never know. So you have to say yes. And um, it could be a fantastic journey. But like I say, if you can't handle rejection, <laughs> if you yeah. can't handle um, not making a lot of money, then you should look for someone.
0: Yeah, I needed to get to learn that when I was first writing my book because even though I knew that in college I was a creative writing student, even getting papers back or even sending my book out to be edited and really getting critiques, I felt like I was bringing out a part of myself. It was vulnerable, but I felt like, you know, in order to get what I wanted to do, I had to gradually
1: overcome that. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um. To me, it was. um, You know, there's an organization called the Writers Guild. Are you a member of that? Are you familiar? No,
0: I know of it. I'm just not. I'm not in it. I would love to be one day.
1: Yeah, I I would. I would recommend people to join. I mean, I'm not a. I mean, I'm just a member. I'm not a an official of the organization or anything.
0: Yeah.
1: But I, you know, every day, I read interesting emails from other authors who talk about what works for them, what doesn't work for them, um, you know, legal issues that they may have. Yeah. So I would highly recommend that um, to anybody who's got a book out there, um, like yourself, To it's not that expensive to look into it. Okay, uh, and easy. also because, you know what, I, I mean, in this society, you know, people sue people all the time. And now people are even getting sued for fictional books, believe it or not, you know, because they're making an argument. Well, your fictional character is very close to me and people are going to think it's me. So therefore, you know, and you lied to me, so therefore I'm going to sue. So um, that's a really good organization, a really good organization. I would recommend that that to you. Thank you. Uh, and, and you, you know, I was fortunate that um, I have some really unique stories because there are very few uh, law enforcement people who have actually specialized in cases involving doctors and nurses who murdered their patients. Usually um, one detective, if he's done one case, that would be it. But I happen to do five, five of these cases including working with the German police uh, on on the case. So I had this collection of incredible stories that I could put into my book. I had this one case in Albany involving a a doctor who uh, altered medical records to put people into the research studies that he was conducting Because he couldn't find enough people to put into the study. So I'll give you an example. Yeah, of course. He's doing a particular cancer study. And he needs 10 people that have this particular cancer. But he can't find 10 people. But he finds some people that are like, well, kind of close, but not really. Shouldn't really be in They have what they call the inclusion-exclusion criteria. That means you have to have the blood right. the the right blood work, the right disease, the right this, the right that. And he would go into their medical records and alter their medical records to make it appear to the pharmaceutical company that he found the 10 people that he needs to get all this money from the pharmaceutical company to do this study. Then he would go to the patient and, and he would say, you know, we determined that you have this cancer but you know, there's a new drug out there, a new investigational drug, and if you sign into this study, well, you might be able to live a long life. You might be able to go to your daughter's wedding and all that, and these poor veterans would say, well, sign me up, sign me up, only to be administered these drugs when they should have never been administered these drugs. And that happens to be the first case of a homicide conviction in connection with pharmaceutical research. There's been a number of pharmaceutical fraud cases, but this was the first actual homicide case involving medical research. It occurred in the Albany VA Medical Center. Oh, my gosh, and
0: I live in New York, so that's only like three hours from me.
1: Maybe four <laughs> or five hours from me. Well, one of the most notorious serial killers was out on Long Island at the VA hospital.
0: I know that one. I think I know that one. I so. Michael,
1: Michael Swango was his name. You know, and then up in uh, Massachusetts, there was Kristen Gilbert. She killed about 30 of our nation's heroes. Uh, Swango killed about 60 people around the world. And then, and there have, have been others. The most recent one was a, a nurse in uh, West Virginia. They killed about 11 patients with insulin. So um, these cases exist. And um, I had the unique opportunity of along with a team. I don't want you to think I did this myself. No, of course. It takes a a team of people, including physicians and toxicologists and forensic nurses. It takes an entire team, and I talk about this in my book, Behind the Murder Curtain, how we actually investigated these cases and how we solved these cases. Pretty interesting stories. It's
0: absolutely mind blowing And I would think, you know, like, where you're, where you, where one should expect to feel safe is in the hospital, in a doctor's office, or in a police station. It's just, I can't even imagine what could be going through someone's mind to want to cause harm to someone else.
1: Yeah. Now, know, um, look, I always looked at hospitals as sort of a sanctuary from crime. You know, you go to a hospital. Oh, did I lose you?
0: No, you did. No, you didn't. I'm still here. My camera.
1: Okay. So. You, you go to a hospital after you're a victim of crime. You don't go to a hospital to first become a victim of crime. Exactly. You know, so to me, a hospital was always a sanctuary from crime, a place where you're safe after the crime is committed. That's where you go, you don't know, go first then. And then there's a crime right there at the hospital, you know, but... Um, Are you still here, do you hear me?
0: Yeah, I did. I think you just got caught
1: off. Oh, okay. Now, I was saying that hospitals are like small cities, and it's such an interesting place to work. You know, um, if you're the director of a hospital, you have a lot on your plate. You do. You know, not only the health and safety of your patients and staff, which is obviously number one, but you have the security, all these medical records, you know, you want to keep them secure, you don't want anybody to get a hold of it. You have all these dangerous narcotics that you have to worry about. That you don't want them in, in, you know, out of control and in, in somebody's bad hands. Exactly. You have nuclear and radiation issues. I mean, you've got millions and millions of dollars of procurement. It's a very tough business to make and to make money because you're not going to make money with Medicare and Medicaid alone I can tell you that you know many of the bigger hospitals actually they make money two ways one is through research you know research grants and the other is donations some of them have very very wealthy uh, patients that give donations to the hospitals and they make a lot of money that way But um, from just Medicare and Medicaid, you're not gonna make it that way. So so the hospital, you have to understand, is a target. And let's put aside the whole medical serial killer thing, but first of all, it's a target because of all the personal medical information that's in the hospital. You know, some hospitals, they have more information on you than probably the CIA does. Not only do they have,
0: you know, your name,
1: date of birth, social security number, yeah. home address, but they also have all your health information. You know, if you're a charity care patient, they even have a copy of your tax return. So look at all this private information they have. And it's in different locations in the hospital. Now, if you're a hacker, right, if you're trying to get in and get that personal information, You're going to attack the hospitals. And many hospitals, many hospitals have been under attack by uh, people who want to get ransomware. They want money and they want your medical information. So a number of hospitals have spent millions of dollars on cyber defense because they're so afraid, based on other hospitals actually getting hacked into it, that they're going to lose access to their medical records. Now there's a case in Germany right now where a hospital got hacked and the doctors did not have access to the patient's medical records. So if you're a patient, let's say you're about to go into surgery or something, all of a sudden my screen goes blank. I don't have your medical records in front of me. Well, what happened was there was a patient in an ambulance and he was headed to the hospital the nearest hospital. All of a sudden the ambulance gets a call And they say, you can't come to this hospital. We can't access our medical records. You have to take the patient to another hospital about 30 miles away. And the patient dies because it took so long to get to that second hospital. You see, so medical identity theft is a terrible, terrible,
0: terrible crime. And like, as you say, Bruce, it just makes me really think about what could be going through someone's mind and I try not to judge anyone but it's like what could be possibly going through someone's mind that anyone would think it's okay to want to cause harm to steal to rob or to even kill people like I don't know you must you must have maybe some sort of answer as to like what is it like that gives someone maybe the thrill or feeling like it's okay to do any of these things.
1: Yeah, you know, I, there, are not, there are a number of reasons it, when we talk about the medical serial kills. Of course, we talked about Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Yeah. And, that's and some of them just had this insatiable insati- need to have the power of life and death over someone. They just crave that power. It's power they never had before. It's the ultimate power to them. And they just enjoy... The fact that they could kill people and nobody even questions them, you know. After a while, one medical serial killer actually thought he was ordained by God himself because he was killing people and nobody was questioning them. Yeah. So if nobody questioning them, maybe, you know, it's not so crazy to think, well, maybe you are. I killed 15 people and nobody even questioned me about it. Gee, maybe I am ordained by the Almighty to do this. He would say, you know. And then there are you know, other reasons. Sometimes, believe it or not, we actually have cases of greed. You know, um, this doctor in England, um, he would kill a patient, and then he well, the way he got caught is he changed the will to make himself the beneficiary of the patient's estate. That wasn't very. No smart. way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then what we've seen recently, we've seen a couple of things. One is we see, this is the case in Texas where the doctor says, you know, I'm really the smartest doctor here. I'm really the best doctor here. They don't appreciate me. You know, they're always coming after me. They just took away my my privileges. This hospital can't run without me. show them I'll start taking out some other patients from some other doctors, and I'll show them that they can't live without me, That I'm really the best doctor here. That's what went on in Texas right now. So there are a number of reasons out there, There a number of reasons why why it happens. Sometimes people start out as good doctors and nurses, and then they develop drug problems and money problems, and they kind of go downhill from there. You know, but it it is it is it is very very scary, very scary. Yeah.
0: But I feel like I'd like to think that maybe by having by having you discuss this on my podcast, or even you discussing this in your book, I'd like to think that hopefully we're doing much more benefit because if we're talking about it, and maybe a lot of people who maybe have survived a lot of these attacks or a lot of these these crimes before maybe a lot of people may feel shamed or really scared to talk about it or even embarrassed so I feel like with the more awareness that we can bring to something maybe the more it can help to help people in the future to learn how to learn how to protect themselves and even just like know how to fight back God forbid
1: well that's that's sort of my mission is to educate people about this the more people that know about great. It, right the The more awareness, the the better it is. And again, I'd say the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals, are just the most honest, hardworking, dedicated, compassionate people you could find. But in a group of people like that, it's so easy to hide because that's what you expect from your medical professionals. You don't expect someone that's gonna intentionally take lies. And this is why they get away with so many murders. It's really, really incredible. It is.
0: And it even makes me think, like, even when I discuss unsolved crimes in my podcast or in my blog, it can be a completely far-fetched idea. But I'd like to think that even if I do talk about an unsolved crime that happened years ago in maybe 2000, like, in Thailand or the Philippines or even Mexico, I'd like to think that with the more information and knowledge that we bring out to people, even if it's something that happened years ago or even just happened recently, maybe we could finally bring justice to so many people who haven't received it, so many victims, and hopefully to bring awareness that you just gotta be careful, but bad things happen, but it doesn't have to take over our lives. If we just have enough information and bring about it, hopefully it could just really, really help more people.
1: Well, that's certainly the goal. That's certainly
0: my goal. I think you're definitely succeeding. (laughs) (laughs) I I think you are definitely succeeding. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you as well, would you feel comfortable if I, if you were to send any of your social media links or your books, your books, so that way, if anyone really wants to reach out to you, that they can through my podcast, but that's completely up to you.
1: Yeah, sure. You know, I I can tell everybody now, it's very easy. Yeah, of course. I have a website, it's called um, BehindTheMurderCurtain.com, and it has an email on there, how you can reach out to me. You know, I get emails from all over the world, I get contacted from people all over the world uh, who have read the book, who feel they may be victims of um, a nurse or, or a doctor. I get a lot of emails from a lot of people so and i i look forward to it i try to help them as best
0: i can it's so interesting i feel like i should have spoken to you when i was publishing my book because i had a dream it wasn't even based on anything in reality and i love watching lifetime films where i saw the good doctor and i kept thinking to myself i i didn't think that these cases were so common i thought okay a doctor one a one bad doctor and like over a million doctors in the world but now I'm really thinking that's just uncanny. It's completely...
1: Well, we have no idea what the real number is because they killed so many people before an investigation even begins. And like you saw in, in that show, The Good Nurse, and this was true in other cases. I'm gonna watch it after this. <laughs> yeah, you'll see how he worked in one hospital and then another hospital and another hospital. And some of those hospitals did some pretty good investigations. And they figured out what he was doing, but they were so happy he left that they didn't say anything to the next hospital, his new employer, and they didn't say anything to the police at all. And in fact, when the police finally came around, they didn't even want to cooperate with the police because the last thing any hospital wants is a reputation that they had a serial killer
0: working I can imagine. So
1: they're so happy that they suspect somebody if they just move on. And then it's somebody else's problem, not theirs. That's
0: oh my gosh. And it's really interesting that you say that because I would think that God willing, someone can come forward and just say, yes there was this this person, this is what they did, this is what they chose to do. Because in my book, just to make research alone, I had no idea where to start. I had to basically think, okay, in a movie setting, the doctor would try to cover up his tracks and then the, the private detective, who was my main character, finds in like a alleyway or like in a, a file room, she finds out everything. And there's so many hidden clues as to so many things, but I didn't want to just reveal it off the top of my head. But I had never seen a situation like where a doctor was deliberately trying to harm someone. So I feel like I needed to talk to you, Bruce. Maybe if I make a sequel, <laughs> you might know exactly how to help. I swear. Uh, you know, um, it's, it's,
1: it's very uh, interesting because usually by the time the police come, there's no crime scene like you see on a CSI. Oh, yeah, the I love that show. The patient is usually. Not in the hospital. In fact, many times the patient is dead and buried now. And it's very, very, these cases are very difficult to make. They're very expensive to make. It takes a team of investigators to make the cases. And they're very time consuming and take a very long time. on a police departments don't have the manpower or the money or even the interest, especially when the director of the hospital will say something like this. Uh, well, thank you very much, officer, for your concern. You know, we looked into this matter, and we had some of our best doctors and nurses review this matter. And we came up with the conclusion that all these patients expired as a direct result of their natural disease processes. So if you want to continue an investigation, go right ahead, but this is the conclusion our medical professionals came to. So how many cops are going to say, no, I still want to investigate? They're going to say, thank you very much.
0: It sounds like in the movies they would, but like maybe not in real life. <laughs>
1: yeah. And they're just going to move on? They're just going to move on. Or like, and that's another reason why medical serial killers kill so many
0: people. Or like in the movies how they show an ex rogue cop who refused to follow the rules. <laughs> and he starts looking, he or she starts looking through, this, through everything. They're like, something's up. And then they're like... They try to get, I guess, their buddies back in the forest, but they're like, "You chose to leave because you didn't, you didn't want to follow the rules." I feel like that's so that's so movie-based, but that maybe it happens in real life. But I don't know if it happens so much as we would think in real life. An ex-cop, sometimes it does.
1: Sometimes.
0: <laughs> oh My God, if you know one, oh my gosh, I would love yeah. to know that. Yeah, actually,
1: yeah, I, I do know one or two. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I, I hope you get an opportunity to, to read the book or I will. Uh, I promise, I promise I will. You know, because I think I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, and I think you'll maybe pick some ideas up for your next book in America. I think so too.
0: I have no idea if I would make a sequel to the doctor or or maybe just something like really related to the medical field. I don't know what it was, just something really fascinated me and i will admit this i do not like hospitals i am not a big fan of hospitals or doctor's office so i am literally the person that if i'm going in there or someone i know is going in there i will research everything that is being given i will research the procedures that are being done or anything i'm i'm that neurotic and i would think i used to think that i was crazy but i was like you know what now after talking with you i'm like maybe i have a point
1: <laughs> I just, I'm so, I'm so crazy like that. So, I tell you, you have to be, uh, you have to be careful uh, what you read on Google because yeah. or WebMD. Not everything's 100 percent accurate. That is true. You know?
0: It's not like having like a real eyewitness description like
1: I'm getting right and, here. You know, it's a guide. Yeah, it's a guide, but um yeah. You know, um, most most physicians hate when patients go to Google. They call it doctor Google because. You know, um, they always, Dr. Google always puts out the worst case scenario, and you may not have the worst case, but when you read it, you start to think you have the worst case. And, um, you know, we talked about hypochondria. There's actually something called cyberchondria, where people uh, read things on the web, and they automatically assume that that's what they have. And that could sometimes, you know, really hurt the patient emotionally because they don't have it, but they're convinced that they have it based on what they read on online.
0: Exactly. I definitely need to learn how to do that because I think I Google so much of everything. That I think I'm gonna do that, and even after this podcast, I will I will find the good nurse, and I will let you know my thoughts on it. Maybe be another episode if we if you want to schedule
1: another one all right very good
0: oh my gosh all
1: right well i'm off to california
0: my gosh i've only been there for one day and i still remember it like it was yesterday
1: and it was in november
0: so please enjoy that sun for me all
1: right thank you very much
0: thank you so much again bruce it was an absolute pleasure it was truly i'm so grateful that you were here um
1: uh, but for me too i enjoyed it
0: very much and this episode should be coming out in a few weeks but i will definitely let you know and yeah, those, just
1: email yeah, so okay
0: definitely and for those of you who have been listening to this podcast thank you so much for tuning in i hope you all have a great day afternoon morning evening or night wherever you are in the world please stay tuned for next week and until then keep on smoothing